primary care knowledge boost, suspected GI malignancies. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Sophie Nelson, who's a GP, and Dr. Alistair Makin, who is a gastroenterologist. We um, chat to them about GI malignancies and how things have changed since COVID. Yeah, uh, we talk about the new pathways within Greater Manchester for how suspected GI malignancies should now be managed. And we learn about how secondary care are now managing their referrals and also what we should be doing in primary care when we suspect that somebody has a GI malignancy. Yep, and we um, go through and revise some of the red flag symptoms and criteria for two-week weights for both upper and lower GI cancers. And then we do a nice bit of coverage of the FIT test and the Edinburgh dysphagia score. It's all really useful. Um, There's a couple of medical phrases that we use that some people will be familiar with, but just on the outset, because we don't explain them as we go along. Um, Dysphagia means difficulty swallowing and adynophagia is pain on swallowing. Um, And we'll be back at the end with our learning points as always. um, And we hope you find the episode helpful. So we always kick off with introductions um, so that listeners know who we're speaking to. Um, So do you guys want to introduce yourself um, for everybody? Um, Yeah, hi, I'm Sophie Nelson. I'm a GP with a specialist interest in gastroenterology and endoscopy. Hi, I'm Alistair Makin. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist at Manchester Royal Infirmary. Brilliant. So today we are talking about suspected GI malignancies. Um, Do you want to talk us through why it's important that that we do talk about it? Well, I think all of this arose from the beginning of the pandemic when a diagnostic service that had sort of rolled on in the background doing thousands and thousands of procedures a year, suddenly got stopped. So we had to decide how we picked the highest risk patients out of the group that were on pause. So there were two approaches to this. One was to try and identify from the group that had been referred who had the highest risk of having a cancer and who couldn't wait. And then also to try and change the referral guidelines to make sure that in the future, with a limited capacity, we only got referred patients where there was some risk of cancer. Now, we we can't legislate for folk presenting without symptoms, but with symptoms, we can actually have a very good go at streamlining the referral practice to make sure that the highest risk symptoms are seen as quickly as possible and lower risk symptoms are reassured that they have a very low risk and that they can wait. Um, How have things changed um, in terms of that referral process but for both upper and lower GI, two-week waits, if you don't mind talking us through. <laughs> no, that's fine. So I think the important thing to say is that NICE guidance hasn't changed. Um, we haven't changed anything about that at all. That remains the same. But the the two important things, I think, that were brought in um, were the Edinburgh dysphagia score for the upper GI two-week waiters um, and fit testing for the lower GI two-week waiters. Um, so if we start with then looking at the, the lower GI cancers, the colon cancer, what um, what can you tell us about its incidence, its risk factors, um, kind of a bit about its epidemiology? Uh, colon cancer is one of the commonest cancers in both men and women. And it's sort of one in 18 men, one in 21 women will have a colon cancer in their lifetime. So it's very common. And yeah. that's why the government invested 10, 12 years ago in the, upper, uh, the lower GI colon cancer screening programme because it's a very, very high return in the asymptomatic population of picking up polyps and cancers. So in the screening programme, 10% of asymptomatic folk who submit to the programme will have a colon cancer and about 50% will have polyps. So that's been based on faecal occult blood testing from the, the onset of the programme. 
And more recently, that's been refined to the fit testing, which is specific for human blood, so that black pudding and the like doesn't sort of set your test off. Now, what's been in the literature for a while is the role of fit testing in symptomatic patients to see if you can stratify folk who've got symptoms that are a worry into high-risk cancer groups and low-risk cancer groups. So what we've been able to do through the pandemic when we've had to try and triage more effectively high-risk symptoms and medium-risk symptoms is get passed through across the board, both in primary care and secondary care, the use of fit testing as a triage process. Now, locally in the Mersey, in Mersey, where they've been doing it for a while, and they've had very good results. So you can have a high-risk symptom with a negative fit where their risk of cancer is less than 1% and have a high-risk symptom with a positive fit where the risk of cancer can be as high as uh, 25%, depending on the level of the of fit detected. Right. So it's been surprisingly simple to get started. And uh, primary care do seem to have embraced it. So the plan is, is that you take a high risk patient and you still refer it according to nice guidelines. And ideally, at the point of contact, a fit test is done in primary care. That doesn't delay the referral. But by the time the referral comes in for us to triage the diagnostic test, it is either on the two week pathway because it's got a positive fit test or downgraded to a semi-urgent routine diagnostic test they're not deferred or cancelled they're just reassured that they probably don't have cancer and that their diagnostic test can be deferred over and above the two-week pathway and it seems to be working very well i mean anecdotally 90 percent of our referrals uh, which i've vetted in the last month have got negative fit tests yeah okay which have been referred as two-week waits and the when you talk about the um the the high risk symptoms there what symptoms are you talking about so, so the, the, the classic thing is rectal bleeding which obviously is, it's not a particularly useful symptom to do a fit test on because it will automatically be positive but rectal bleeding in an older group needs to be investigated we're talking about a, a change in bowel habit to a looser stool any altered bowel habit where there is a concern that it could be a cancer causing it a fit test will decide who gets tested and how quickly they get tested and there any other symptoms that we need to be aware of that we kind of flag up in your mind in primary care or when need to maybe think about it? Blo- bloating. So fixed bloating is another sort of fairly significant symptom. And that's obviously associated with ovarian cancer as well. But if you have a, a patient with presenting with fixed bloating, a CT scan and a fit test will be fairly effective to rule out uh, colon cancer. They don't really need a, a colonoscopy. But the problem is, is that a lot of these referrals have been too weak tagged which means we have to do them within a certain time frame because of the target and now we've got a way of reassuring both the referrer and the patient and say you will get investigated but this is not a cancer investigation anymore um if you've identified a patient as having some suspicious symptoms and you referred them on a two-week wait and they do turn out to have a negative fit test in terms of priorities and seeing them are they still getting assessed that first kind of appointment, is that still within the normal kind of two-week wait time frame? So there's no question of saying if it's negative, they don't need any investigation because they may have non-cancer, non-polyp causes for their symptoms, which still need to be investigated. But what it means is the the urgency and the need to, to find them a two-week slot in a limited capacity service is stepped down. And usually they can wait a few weeks, possibly three months, 
and you're not, your risk of missing serious pathology, which would be altered by a delay, is reduced. Are they still being rechecked when they're on the system? If they're a negative fit, did, there was talk of redoing think, it they're, they're, three months later. Ultimately, so there'll be a three-month repeat fit, okay. but that that hasn't happened as yet. I said we're, we're, we're trying to triage the waiting list, and actually what's happening is that a lot of people who've been left waiting a long time are being done from the longest waiters forward. So having their, endos- having their endoscopic procedure done either, uh, either within the trusts or in uh, an outsourcing. Okay. I'm just thinking through that, I guess, in my head, I think I'd be worried about referring people on a two-week, then being risk stratified as being low, and then them being on the waiting list, and then potentially developing a cancer while they're on that waiting list, and then not representing because they think, oh, I'm already on a, a waiting list for some reason. But I guess if there's a bit of a safety net in there. I mean, the, the, the directive came from the Department of Health. So it's, 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 it's not a local policy, it's a national thing. And you can actually stratify the risk according to the fit level. So... Uh, you know, a high fit level has a much higher risk of cancer than a low or an undetectable fit level. So if you have undetectable fit, your risk of colon cancer is less than 1%. So, I mean, interestingly, the NICE guidelines were set up for a 3% risk of cancer. So it, it's a very low risk of cancer just going on the NICE guidelines. And if you can subclassify those with a with a very, very specific test, you can make sure you investigate only the highest risk group with the highest diagnostic return that's reassuring yeah and just one more question about patients that might have been referred with a mass so that they've come in you've examined their abdomen and they've been found to have an abdominal mass if they've got a negative fit test where do they stand with kind of investigations like cts or they they almost certainly wouldn't be referred for colon they'd have a ct straight away and any 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 subsequent test would be based on what the ct showed so our 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 pathway is very clear that if you guys send in someone who you think's got a mass or the patient thinks they've got a mass they'll get scanned and the same as if they have a mass pr they'll get it doesn't matter we wouldn't bother doing a fit for that that would go straight to an urgent endoscopy Um, and just a thought in terms of fit tests that's come to me and if people aren't used to using them, if they're like new to an area that um, it's been it's been started during COVID, is there anything special that they need to tell patients in terms of performing the test? Um, so it's slightly different from faecal occult blood testing. Um, with that, you had to take um, three stool samples and two of them had to be positive um, for it to count as a positive test. With fit testing, it's one stool sample. Um, so it's much, much easier to do. And that's the only difference, really. It comes with instructions. The uptake is better because people were dropping off after doing, you know, one or two of their faecal occult blood samples. Whereas with the fit testing, it's a one test and people, the the uptake is higher. People are doing it more. I think the only issue we've found is that folk putting it in the post. Ah. So that's that's something that has to be organised locally. You can post them, which is how the bowel cancer screening programmes operated. Or a lot of GP practices have, uh, are operating a local drop-off. Yeah, that's how we're doing. Just it, need yeah. to make sure you put the lid on properly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it comes with a little package of information, very different to uh, other stool tests. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, would you mind sort of talking us through more about the two-week wait guidelines? Who should we be referring for lower GI two-week waits? So, it would be anybody of any age with an anal, rectal, or abdominal mass. Anybody over 40 with abdominal pain and weight loss. Anybody of under 50 with rectal bleeding and one or more of the following. Iron deficiency anemia, weight loss, change in bowel habit or abdominal pain. 
anybody over the age of 50 with unexplained rectal bleeding, and anybody over the age of 60 with one or more of changing bowel habit or iron deficiency anemia. Grand. It's always good to just go through that as a wee reminder um, to know who we're looking out for. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, the FIT test is being used for the bowel screening um, as well, and now we're using it as a kind of a a symptomatic test. Um, Is it worth just going through what the difference is between the usage there? I mean, the, the bowel cancer screening program is basically open to every at the moment everybody over the age of sixty and up to the age of seventy five. So uh, younger folk can opt in and older folk can opt in, but it gets sent out every two years to that age cohort. Now, uh, the government plans to bring that age down to fifty over the next five years, so that would hopefully capture all the younger cancers that are present uh, being diagnosed before the bowel cancer screening program. Um, is they're eligible for so they get sent a kit with instructions that they send it back but they are unselected so it goes out to everybody um so it's then sent back to a central hub and processed and then if they have a positive test they then get through the system where they meet up with a specialist screening practitioner who talks them through the process and refers them on for a colonoscopy and there's a very rapid turnaround from when you have a positive test now the the positivity rate is around about two percent of the, the, the returnees and the uptake varies between 60 to 70% in some of the uh, leafier suburbs of Greater Manchester yeah. to as low as 30% in, se- in the centre of town. Gosh, yeah. So the, 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 the big task is how we persuade the highest risk group to take up. And I think that a lot of that is being flipped back to primary care so that if folk don't take up the screening, it's the details are sent back to, to their GPs to sort of chase them up more locally. And I think, as Sophie said, having to, to do to deal with one stool is a bit easier than having to deal with three stools. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think there is already a noticeably higher uptake. Good. And then that's a it's a nice way to put it. So the the testing that we're now talking about is on symptomatic people. It's a selected individual. It's not a random. System. Absolutely. So basically, you as the as the primary care clinician or if we see someone in the secondary care setting decide to do a fit test to help triage those symptoms into a cancer symptom or a non-cancer symptom. And yeah, and another clarification, sorry, just to check. When you're saying that the 2% of the screening uh, tests, the screening fit tests are positive, is that that the tests themselves are positive? It's not that 2% of them have cancer? It's between 1.5% and 2%, depending on the region. Um, And it can be a little bit higher and it can be a bit lower. Basically, of that group, about 10 to 15% will have a false positive. So we'll have nothing on colonoscopy. The, re- the remainder will have pathology. So the, yeah. the, the cancer rate is about 10 to 12%. And the adenoma detection rate is about 50% in that group. So it's a, it's a very high re- return of pathology. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it is. Um, and then going back to the guidelines and that iron deficiency anemia um where does iron deficiency anemia fit into the picture of suspected GI malignancies? So how common is it to be part of a, of a malignancy? Very common. I think it's, 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 it's said to be, depending on which study you read, it's between 50 and 80% of right-sided colon cancers. Wow. Yeah. And I think if you have an altered bowel habit, it's a very high percentage will have colon cancers if there's an associated anemia. Yeah. Uh, obviously left-sided lesions are much less likely to present with anemia because they have overt symptoms whereas right-sided lesions often have very limited symptoms 
and present with their anemia rather than with their the, the changes to the bowel that are caused by a small right-sided lesion. So you're more likely to have symptoms if it's a left-sided lesion. Rectal or, or, or left-sided are more likely to present with changes in the bowel habit, localised symptoms of bleeding, whereas right-sided colon cancers are usually pretty advanced by the time they present with symptoms. Okay. And um, remind me again, what age does the two-week weight guidelines say to refer patients with iron deficiency anemia for consideration of uh, lower GI cancers? So it would be a patient who was um, over 50 with iron deficiency anemia. And for our under 50s who are men or who don't have um, heavy periods, what would you recommend doing? Is that, is that where the FIT tests? So, yeah, we do have the iron deficiency anemia pathway, um, which includes those. So probably the clearest way to say it is that if you are male or if you are a postmenopausal female and you have an iron deficiency anemia or an isolated low ferritin, then we would expect a two-week weight referral for that patient. Um, okay. If they are a premenopausal female, then a FIT test can be used at that stage. So if you have a FIT test in a premenopausal female that's over 10, then that would could trigger into a two-week weight pathway. Yeah. If the FIT was negative and they don't have any strong family history of colorectal cancer, then at that stage you could trial a, a three-month course of iron replacement on them to see whether that makes a difference or not. If that improves the situation and is maintained, their HB is maintained, um, then that's someone that you don't need to refer in. But if you replace their iron and their haemoglobin either doesn't respond or it drops back down again fairly quickly afterwards, then that would warrant a referral into secondary care. And, yeah, And also in the premenopausal women, uh, it's always worth doing a TTG. Because, oh, okay, yeah, and yeah. I think that's the goes for all iron deficiency anemia. It's worth checking that. And there's a shopping list of tests to do as the referrer with iron deficiency anemia, which is other hematinics, TTG, CRP, a cal fecal calprotectin, and a fit test. And a urine dip. And a urine dip just to make sure there isn't another source of potential blood loss. Brilliant. And can we link to those iron deficiency guidelines as well? They're, 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 they've all got to be signed off formally, but they were all basically being agreed by the various committees that have done all this. So we might put a link um, to those if we can access to them. I, th I think I think the, 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 the meetings that have been happening are some of the most exciting meetings since I've been here because it's not just within the city, but it's within the region. So mm. Merseyside and Cumbria and Lancashire all want to adopt the same guidelines so that basically wow. all the whole of, of primary and secondary care are hopefully working to the same approach which means that That's really good. it actually just means it's much easier and everyone knows what they're getting. It's it's easier for education points of view and patient understanding is that you can have two people talking and say, well, my GP did this and why didn't they? If everyone's doing the same thing and they're getting the same approach, hopefully it will make it much easier for the future. Yeah, it does make sense to standardise it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I guess we move on to upper GI and I. Um, so if we, if we just take the same approach and say... Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, upper GI malignancies? Again, their kind of incidents, a bit about their general presentation. So, so but the, the bottom line is these are these are diseases of older people. Um, so, although both stomach cancer and esophageal cancer occur in younger people, it's it's less than ten percent of the cases. And I think that's it's really quite important that folk are aware of that. Is that a bit of indigestion in a twenty year old is very very unlikely to be a cancer symptom 
dysphagia in all age groups is important, but it's the pattern and the duration and whether it's to solids or liquids, whether it's continuous or whether it's intermittent, those are all really quite important discriminators, which is what this, the Edinburgh dysphagia score has been set up to do. So stomach cancer does occur in 20-year-olds um, and it's very disconcerting when it, when it does, but it's always genetic. And unfortunately, there usually has to be an index case that puts us on to the fact that that's an at-risk family like so many genetic conditions. Same with esophageal cancer. But the incidence starts increasing from the 40s and 50s and is usually associated with smoking, high alcohol intake and obesity, other, other, other big risk factors. And yeah, no one is going to be in any way worried about scoping someone who's got overt dysphagia. But there are ways of scoping them in that need a two-week wait and somewhere they could be stepped down because their risk is very low of having a malignancy. And even with dysphagia to solids, the risk of having a cancer with that specific symptom is less than 50%, it's considerably less than 50%. Wow. And actually, that's probably a good point to move on and, and talk about the um, the two-week wait criteria um, in terms of symptoms for um, upper GI cancers. Um, so in terms of upper GI suspected cancer, the two-week wait guidelines, um, anybody d with dysphagia, um, true dysphagia, counts as a two-week wait referral. Um, and then you have patients who are over 55 with weight loss and one of the following, one or more of the following, upper abdominal pain, reflux and or dyspepsia, and they would want a two-week wait referral as well. And are there, any, are there any other symptoms that might that aren't on that list that might kind of ring a little bell in your head if they if they presented to you? Well, I've been caught out by someone who just had a dinophagia. So a okay. uh, older man who presented with vague reflux type symptoms and a dinophagia, and he turned out to have an esophageal cancer. Now it's a new onset symptom, but he had no weight loss, no dysphagia, and actually had quite a large tumour. So yeah. th there are these folk, and this is what comes out in all the literature, is that you can have very specific symptoms which are not particularly sensitive. So that you can have someone who you think is going to have a, a cancer and actually has a normal endoscopy. Mm. And, and we, we just need to make sure that we don't investigate a thousand people to pick up one patient. And th there are figures around that you can scope yeah, 10,000 people to pick up one case of treatable cancer in folk with simple reflux so it, 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 it's 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 really really important that we scope the group where we're most likely to find pathology in rather than scoping everyone and hoping we're going to find something fixable that definitely makes sense it's quite reassuring for the reflux <laughs> um so can you talk us through the edinburgh dysphagia score so the Edinburgh dysphagia score. So the, the aim of this uh, was to develop a scoring system to categorise patients into high or low risk of malignancy. Um, so it was actually first developed a long time before COVID. Um, and the first study was done with 574 consecutive referrals with dysphagia. And they looked at the symptoms most likely to indicate cancer. And the score is calculated using age, gender, current acid reflux symptoms, dysphagia localised to the neck, weight loss um, or symptoms of more than six months. Um, and so there's a score based on those and you add the numbers together. Um, and if the score is more than 3.5, the patient requires urgent investigation because they're high risk. And if the score is less than 3.5, the patient can have a routine endoscopy. Um, now, this is on our two-week wait referral 
pathways at the moment, but uh, GPs still refer as a two-week wait, and this stratification is done in secondary care. Okay. Um, so the original study, when it was done in 2010, um, 30 to 35% of the referrals had a EDS score of less than 3.5. Um, and those within that group, there was only one missed cancer out of, out of 574. Um, in the group with a higher risk scores of more than 3.5, there was a 20% cancer rate. Um, Gosh. It was then looked at again. There was a bigger study done of 2,000 patients a couple of years later. Um, and there were three patients in that group with an EDS score of less than 3.5 that had cancer. Um, so the negative predictive value um, is, is, is quite high um, for, the, for the Edinburgh dysphagia score. It's quite a good way to, to weed out those people who... Um, who are at high risk of having cancers. It's just nice to have all those tools kind of in your arsenal to be able to use to help with that decision making. Yeah, absolutely. So on the webinar, you mentioned about um, H. pylori and that if somebody's got very hard to treat reflux, not necessarily eradicating it. Do you mind t- talking to us a little it's bit about favourite that? topic? I don't think anyone's listening to the webinar. <laughs> they were listening. <laughs> so, so, uh, this is quite a difficult subject. There are, there are lots and lots of meta-analyses which have said that if someone has indigestion-type symptoms and positive H. pylori test, they should be eradicated mm-hmm. and only referred on for investigation if they don't have any alarm symptoms, if they have persistent symptoms or have anything else developing. Now, there's been a number of meta-analyses over the years and have shown that that recommendation has got less and less black and white. And this is probably because we're now getting a huge mix of ethnicity in our referral cohorts. So if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, pretty well everyone's got H. pylori. If you go to the Far East, pretty well everyone's got H. pylori. So there are certain communities which are now part and parcel of our referral practice in the UK, which have very high H. pylori rates, which rather negates the risk factor when it's only 15% of your population. Now, the interesting thing is if you go, there was a study done of looking at pathology specimens in medical school uh, anatomy libraries, which showed that just about every single stomach in there had H. pylori from the turn of the 19th century. So there's lots of things that say that H. pylori is not hazardous in everybody. So discriminating is difficult. So I tend to go on the fact that if someone has overt reflux, so has heartburn or water brash or what you would say is and they come and tell you, I've got heartburn, I've got a, then eradicating H. pylori in that group is probably no use. And there's very good evidence that actually may make their reflux more difficult to treat. If you have someone who's not got overt reflux, then it is at the moment literature based and within lots of guidelines that you should treat. Uh, test their for H. pylori and treat them accordingly. So if they've got lots of symptoms, eradicating it is unlikely to help? No, so, so if they've got true H. pylori-related dyspepsia, indigestion, they may well get better if you eradicate the H. pylori. If they've got reflux, classical reflux, actually you may not make the situation better, you may make it worse. But, but actually it's sometimes very difficult, as we were discussing earlier, for a patient to give you enough information to decide whether it's proper reflux or a bit of indigestion with a bit of reflux. So I think if you're in any doubt and they've got no alarm symptoms, there's probably no harm in checking their H. pylori. 
and you may find that a lot of them get better. But just be aware that some of them might come back in and say they've got really rip-roaring reflux now and you have to treat them more actively. Yeah, that is interesting. But you're right, I was picturing the, the history descriptions there and thinking, I don't know how on earth I'd be able to figure that out. <laughs> I, th- I, think a mon- I think a monkey with a button, with one saying reflux and one saying indigestion is probably about the best way of discriminating it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how can you tell the difference between reflux and dyspepsia? Okay, so reflux is um, a classic sensation of a burning sensation coming up behind the retrosternum often with a sensation of something going to come up into your mouth. And it's also postural. So any symptom that's made worse by a change in your posture, so bending over, lifting things, or when you lie, symptoms get worse at night, is likely to be acid reflux. If you have pain that comes on when you're hungry, or pain that comes on after you've eaten, and is in the pit of your stomach, that's more likely to be dyspeptic. It's a lovely description. That's what I tend to go on as a simple gastroenterologist. And you you, you can get yourself out of jail because the treatment's the same. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Um, And then just a brief mention about advice and guidance. It's now live in Greater Manchester. Um, Do you want to just tell us a little bit about it and why it might be used? Um, So, yeah, it it went live. It was something that was put in quite early on in the COVID pandemic. And there's always been an acknowledgement that there's a long wait for gastro appointments and a long wait for endoscopy. And often those patients are struggling with symptoms in the meantime. So um, advice and guidance was put in as a way of getting non-urgent advice. The two-week waiters, you wouldn't be asking, you would just be referring. Um, But those patients who have symptoms... um, that you're worried about, you want to know how to treat them. They may end up with a gastroenterology referral at some point, um, but you might want to to talk about uh, medication or management in the meantime. Then that would be appropriate for advice and guidance. Lots of other things that we often think, well, actually, this patient doesn't need to be physically seen by a gastroenterologist. We just need some advice on on what to do next. Um, Certainly abnormal LFTs at times, those kind of questions have been really perfect for advice and guidance. Um, and I think when they triaged the first load of referrals that came through in the first month, 90 of them were managed as outpatients without coming into hospital and 10% of them were converted into outpatient appointments. So it really does work. Um the turnaround around time was hoped to be around about 48 hours. Um, obviously, since that was put in place, the COVID, the second wave of the COVID pan- pandemic has, um, has been here. The gastroenterologists have been on the COVID wards and providing care directly. So that has gone down a bit. But actually, I, I don't think GPs mind that at all. I think waiting a week to get um, some really comprehensive advice about a patient is not long to wait at all in most situations. And if you're more worried than that, you would just either be picking up the phone and referring them in um, or you'd be referring them as a two-week wait. Wow, that's impressive considering everything that the NHS has had thrown at it. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, then we, we're on to our last question, um, which is um, always what um, are your take-home points? What do you want listeners to remember the most from this discussion today? What I would hope for take-home from this is that we are not trying to block GP access to secondary care. And I think there's, there's always a worry that any new guidelines that come in, anything that says secondary care doesn't want to see the patients you're concerned about, I think what this is about is trying to take a a limited resource and use it as effectively as possible 
to diagnose the highest risk patients as quickly as possible who will benefit most from early intervention. But hopefully with the guidelines and with the advice and guidance and all the other things we've put in, we can get the next cohort through the semi-urgent who are debilitated by their symptoms and who need to be sorted out, seen quickly and efficiently, but reassured from a very early stage that we're not worried that they've got cancer, that actually them waiting two or three months is not going to adversely affect their outcome. And I think what we've had pre-COVID um, is a whole lot of folk who have not been reassured and genuinely think they've got something serious or sinister, mm-hmm. filling up our clinics with symptoms, which when they get to see us, both they and us know that they haven't got anything serious. And the GP knew right at the beginning, but didn't have any way of reassuring them in the interim. Sophie? Um, I think I'd probably say use of advice and guidance is is one of the most important take-homes. If it's available in the area, then use it because its success rates are really high um, and it's reducing these huge long waits for people to be seen by a gastroenterologist when actually they could have been dealt with within a week or two um, by the advice and guidance service. So yeah, I think that, that's a really good, important take-home. Fabulous. Well, thank you both so much for chatting to us today, taking time out of your very busy days um, so that we can, we can do some learning. So thank you very much. It's much appreciated. No problem. So that was a really lovely episode, wasn't it, Lisa? Oh yeah, they they were an absolute joy to interview. Um, and for once, it technically all went quite well, so it was quite an enjoyable episode to do. Um, but yes, I I um I thought it was a really helpful topic and just kind of figuring out what's happened since COVID came in and had an impact. And I liked just learning about these um kind of new systems, the fit testing, the um edinburgh dysphagia score yeah. um and kind of actually hearing um from alistair about the sensitivity and specificity of those tests and how good they actually are and, and how reassured we can be when we use them um and how this risk stratifying that's now happening is is actually quite a good tool to be used um and and probably something that maybe should have happened regardless of covid anyway yeah it is a tricky problem when you've got a background incidence that's quite so high uh, and yeah. that like he was explaining that the symptoms aren't necessarily overly reliable in terms of no. those conversion rates into who actually has cancer um yeah it's really nice to go through and then there's more on the webinar as well that where he goes through particular cases where people have been worried that their referrals might not have been um, taken as seriously or patients that they were worried about that might be risk stratified lower and he he does go through those cases as well which oh, is that's quite helpful yeah and but yeah i really liked um going through about iron deficiency anemia that was really really yes. helpful yeah oh, that was so useful yeah that it is actually quite a useful um symptom it does have a good conversion rate so um yeah and that pathway which pathway? The, <laughs> the one oh, that the they talked about that might be coming. Yeah, yeah. like and what to do with because all those like really hard people who are under the two week wait criteria, what to actually do with them. So yeah. it's quite good that they thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I really liked when we were going through about the lower risk patients that, that might have negative fit tests, but they still have red flag symptoms. And um, that actually, if, you know, if they did have a mass or things like that, people would be automatically going straight for CT. Um, yeah. So that's that was really useful to know all of that as well. Yeah, I think it's nice to hear that they that secondary care still are actually keeping those patients and um, they're not just discharging them or they're not going off into the ether they're actually on their books and they will get an investigation eventually and that they might think about putting in some safety netting depending on how long this is going on for so that was all quite useful yeah so if you'd like to get in touch you can do there's several ways you can email us and our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can tweet us and our handle is at pckb podcast
Yes. And thank you to everybody who's gotten in touch already. And um, we love getting feedback and we do um, try our best to um, work on that and enact whatever is coming through. Um, And if you don't want to get in touch um, by email or Twitter, there's also a survey um, and we'll put the link in the episode description um, and you can fill it in anonymously and it takes about a minute to do. Yeah. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.